love having communion with you guys. I just love it. Every week, I love it. I love it, I love it. Um, I love teaching the Word. I love that uh, that you make up a congregation of people that like to bring your Bibles to church <laughs> and, uh, and get a, read them together with me so that when I forget to bring my Bible up to the pulpit, I can just borrow one from the front row every time. It's perfect. I just, I love it. I love it. Um, I got to start the stream, huh? Or did you do that? Is this all on the internet right now? Cool. I won't say anything dumb then. Since it's on a... uh, you can turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Um, we'll be reading through verse 19 of this chapter. You can follow along in your own Bibles if you like, or just listen to the sound of my melodious voice. Uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 14, starting in verse 1, it says, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching, even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? So likewise, you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Even so, you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the spirit, and I will also sing with the understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say, Amen, at your giving of thanks, since he does not understand what you say? For you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. Lord God, we pray that I would speak, that we would hear uh, with words easy to understand, um, that, that your word would be understood today by your church so that we can worship you well, so that we can build up your body well, so we can serve one another well. I pray that you would cut through any confusion and uh, help us handle uh, this word of truth well and generously 
towards each other even, that we would rightly divide the word of truth and that the result of our understanding would be greater love for your church and greater reverence for your word and uh, deep affection for the things of God. Now bless us, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Back in verse 1, you have this wonderful phrase, pursue love. And there's a comma after that word, but you could just put a period there and it would be just as well. Uh, Paul has just finished chapter 13, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, a well-known one, one of his greatest hits. It's showing in beautiful and comprehensive terms the superiority of love over other spiritual gifts, spiritual experiences, spiritual practices. And he's been talking about spiritual gifts or really the spiritual life for several uh, paragraphs now, a few chapters. And rather than prioritizing any one ministry or any one spiritual experience or any spiritual gift, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, prioritizes love above all else. This is not unique to Pauline theology. This is consistent with what we read in the Gospels. Jesus says, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. Uh, it's something we certainly see in the letters of John, where he sets this line just on repeat. My little children love one another. My little children love one another. And, and it's what we see in the letters of Peter, who writes, above all things, have fervent love for one another, 1 Peter 4.8. So this is consistent in all the writings of the apostles. It's consistent in the books of the New Testament. Pursue love, because love above all things is the goal. And you can go ahead and revisit the sermons in chapter 13 if you need a refresher. They were fun to preach. Hope they were good to listen to. Uh, but in, in this chapter 14 here, he's revisiting this idea. Pursue love. Make sure your priorities are straight. But as you, as you pursue love, it's okay to desire spiritual gifts. Now, if you can remember all the way back to chapter 12, Paul said, I do not want you to be ignorant of spiritual gifts. And I pointed out when we taught that the word gifts, it's not there in the original Greek. It's not there in the manuscripts or the, the uh, text or textual evidence that we have. So you might read the verse, I do not want you to be ignorant of spiritual things or uh, spiritual fill in the blank. Um, you can desire here, it says spiritual gifts, but the word gifts, again, isn't actually there. So it's desire spiritual Things. Desire the work of the Spirit. Desire the fruit of the Spirit. Desire the gifts of the Spirit. Desire the life of the Spirit. Make it your heart's craving to have the perspective that the Holy Spirit of God gives. You should want that. All of us should want that. I'm wanting it right now. Uh, but don't confuse that good and wholesome desire with the higher goal and the superior pursuit that has been placed in front of you. That is to love God and love people. To desire spiritual gifts, it's good. We're told to do it. Earnestly desire the best gifts. That's how Paul closed up chapter 12. You're supposed to want them. But that desire for the gifts, that's not the final desire. Uh, th those gifts are not the object of our pursuit in the Christian life. Paul likens the Christian walk to a race, right? In some places. So if we were to borrow that analogy and maybe stretch it and play with it a little, you might say love is the finish line or the platform that the first, second, third place people, you know, stand on, or maybe so the person just ahead of you that you're trying to beat and be faster than. Okay, pursue love. Make it the goal. You're trying to get to this place where you are loving well and filled with the love of God. That's the object of your running. 
Use your energy to love well. Strategize how you can love better. Pursuit, that's the physical action. It's work. Let's let your life's work be to love well. That would be a life well lived. Now, desire, that's that's an internal action. Uh, it's it's the, the heart's position towards a thing. Pursue love, desire gifts. Don't work to get more spiritual gifts. Don't make it your life's work to just be super gifted. Don't spend all your energy and all your research and all your everything and be like, yeah, I really got to work on this spiritual gift of, you know, X, Y, or Z. That's not how gifts work. Paul says we're running a race. You might say that spiritual gifts then are kind of like new shoes. <laughs> now, as you run, you might really want new shoes. Your feet would feel better in new shoes. You're convinced that you would be faster if you had better shoes, but you're not running to the shoe store. Like there's no race that's directed towards the shoe store. You're not pursuing shoes. You're pursuing love. To make the tools of the trade the end goal rather than a means to an end is to be a shoe collector who's pretending to be a runner. And when the church gets a little bit off kilter with things like spiritual gifts, and they make sure that whenever they're together, they've got to see all their favorite spiritual gifts in operation, uh, you know, crank to 11, uh, you're, you're making the shoes the point rather than running the race. Try another one of Paul's metaphors. He says we're soldiers. We're commissioned to fight. The flesh wars against the spirit. We fight against sin, the world, the devil. We have been given weapons. It's okay to desire the good weapons. You should want nothing but the best. But don't be a sword collector. That's weird. <laughs> be a warrior. It's better. As you pursue love itself, and make it your priority to love well, it's okay to desire the spiritual gifts as a means to that end. It's not only okay, it's required. We are told, earnestly desire the best gifts, but don't make them the goal. On the front lines, in missions, where the gospel is most opposed, where the name of Jesus has been least heard, that's where you'll see these spiritual weapons or spiritual gifts most prevalent. And you will see the difference between frontline missions using tools that are necessary for the work ahead of them. And you'll notice, if you have the opportunity to observe different church cultures, different church settings, that this is very different than the church that just sort of kind of wishes things were more excited on Sunday mornings. So it's just a different experience entirely. There's a different spiritual atmosphere in these places, and you should be able to tell the difference between a warrior and an antique sword collector. Okay, you should be able to tell the difference between a marathon runner and a guy who likes shoes. They're very different things. So Paul in saying, desire the spiritual gifts, the very best ones. Absolutely. I want you to have, I don't want you to be ignorant of spiritual gifts. You should know how to tie your shoes. But they're not the point. Paul says, desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. He prioritizes love above all spiritual gifts, but within the spiritual gifts, he prioritizes prophecy above speaking in tongues. Now, this tension between prophecy and tongues has already been seen in, in the letter. In chapter 13, those were the first two gifts that Paul uh, places under the more excellent way of loving. He says, there are tongues, they'll cease. If prophecies, they'll fail. And you need to remember back in chapter 12 where Paul talks about the body and how each member, that's us, we're each members of the body, right? And you can't say to the less presentable part, I have no need of you, by saying, you know, uh, you know, you have a different gifting and I have mine and mine's better. So now by saying, especially that you may prophesy, it could almost sound like Paul is saying, 
Yeah, that is actually the best gift. That thing about every body part being important, I just said that to make the toes feel better because like they're always, that can't be what he means. That can't be what's going on here. He has validated all the gifts. He has already asked the rhetorical question, do all prophesy, with the implied answer being a resounding no. If every part of the body was an eye, where would the hearing be? So we know we're not all gifted in the same way. We don't all pursue the same giftings. So this bit about desiring spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy, can be a little bit confusing. Here's what seems to be going on. Paul is shifting from a broad discussion of spiritual gifts in general now to the specific use of spiritual gifts within the Corinthians gatherings. He's narrowing in from a general discussion about all spiritual gifts down to the specific gifts that the Corinthians were having particular problems with. Um, in a church gathering, prophecy is to be sought above the gift of tongues. This is important for Paul to talk to the Corinthians about because they had become kind of sloppy where these things are concerned. So Paul defines these two gifts very clearly and then shows how each one is to be used in the life of the believer and the church at large. Now, why these two? Why didn't he do this for the gift of helps and healings or the gift of word of knowledge and word of wisdom? Uh, probably for no other reason than the Corinthians' problems from Sunday to Sunday were centered around these gifts, tongues and prophecy. They weren't having problems with those other gifts as much. And so Paul uses these as sort of a case study to show this is how spiritual gifts differ from one another, and this is how they are used, some in private, some in public. When Paul started the discussion, he said, I don't want you to be ignorant. It seems like most of the Corinthians' ignorance was probably around this area of prophecy and tongues. Can you blame them? It also seems evident from the rest of this chapter that the thing Paul was trying to correct was an unwholesome emphasis on the gift of speaking in tongues and the subsequent belittling of other gifts, such as prophecy. So Paul is straightening them out, saying, you've got it backwards. If you're going to be excited about the spiritual gifts, which you are, obviously, get excited about the gifts that help you serve other people. Get excited about the gifts that build up the body of Christ, not the ones that make you look really weird in public. You're embarrassing. Uh, be, get excited about the gifts that bless the most people the most deeply. Now, another reason Paul addresses uh, them regarding these two gifts specifically is that each one of these gifts, prophecy and tongues, serves as a sort of categorical heading for different ways to use gifts. Remember how Paul was talking about the different body parts in the body of Christ, and he mentioned that some are less presentable. And so what do we do with our physical bodies, with the parts that are less presentable? We cover them. Tongues, Paul is going to say, is less presentable. It is not proper to be used in a general public format. Prophecy, which is proclaiming the word of God in an edifying, exhorting, and comforting way, is absolutely appropriate in a public form, if done decently and in order. So the Corinthians were getting these things backwards and upside down. The last reason these two gifts in particular take up so much space, even though there is such a great diversity of gifts that he could have written about, is that one of these gifts is primarily others-focused, prophecy, while the other is unique in that it is for the benefit of the one using it. That's the gift of tongues. Since the larger use of the gifts, the gifts as a whole in general, are to be for the benefit of all, chapter 12, verse 7, 
Paul is redirecting the Corinthians away from a self-centered use of spiritual gifts and ministries towards an others-focused, more loving use of their giftings. So now in verse 2, Paul is going to explain the key difference between these two gifts and giving us some very useful definitions, especially where prophecy is concerned. So verse 2 says, For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish all spoke with tongues. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. All right, a lot of really important stuff here. Tongues is identified as a very unique gift that is different from the others. When Paul talked about the gifts in chapter 12, he said that they're given to each for the benefit of all, except this one. Tongues is different. He says the gift of tongues is for the speaker, not the hearer. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. Now that's fine. Paul says, I wish you all spoke with tongues. I mean, you could need some of this kind of edification. And at the end of the chapter, which we'll get to next time, Paul will say about their church gatherings, don't forbid the speaking in tongues. It has its place, but do not confuse it with what it isn't. The gift of tongues in the individual is not a gift to edify the whole body. It would be out of place to assume that this was the case. Since love has been placed as the foremost goal and the object of our pursuit, then the gift of tongues, which would edify you, should be less desirable to you than the gift of, say, prophecy, which would edify everyone else. Now, once more, a little bit of review. Tongues is a gift given to an individual for the purpose of bringing their own soul into deeper communion with God. It is a way of giving the, the speak, giving God, excuse me, praise that surpasses human language or understanding. Um, you can pray for this gift. You can desire it. He can give it to you. If you would like this gift or any gift or simply the best gifts, as Paul says in chapter 12, I would suggest you ask for it and ask to be prayed for with the laying on of hands. Uh, Paul talks to Timothy about the gift that was given to him through on, throughout, sorry, through the laying on of hands, and we can imitate that. Of course, it's the Spirit who gives, and like the wind that blows where it wishes, we don't control him in any way, but he knows how to give good things, and this is a good thing. It is possible he would give you the gift of tongues. And if this is the, the case, then the most likely place for you to use this gift is at your own home, in your personal quiet time with the Lord. It is by no means strictly limited to that place, but that's going to be the most common place it will be used. Now, before we go into prophecy, let's clear something else up about tongues. Sometimes people talk about two different kinds of tongues, two different kinds of this gift, because what Paul is describing here is this personal inward gift that benefits the individual. But when we read of the speaking of tongues on Pentecost, it seems slightly different than that, doesn't it? It's not. In the book of Acts, the Spirit descends and they begin to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Acts 2 verse 4. They go out of this upper room where the prayer meeting was happening and they are heard by devout men from every nation under heaven. These are people who are multilingual. They understand other languages. They're coming into Jerusalem from their hometown. They speak a different language there than in Jerusalem. And they're confused since everyone heard them speaking in his own language. And they said, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. 
From this, some assume that those who had been in the upper room were preaching the gospel in those foreign tongues. doesn't seem like this is the case. Peter preaches the gospel in one language, and that is what they respond to. The tongues they are confused by. Because you have 120 people, and they're talking in 120 different languages, and one guy's like, I just heard him speak my language. That's really weird. The response to the gospel on the day of Pentecost was not in response to the speaking in tongues. It was to the preaching and prophecy of Peter. Those are two different ministries. The people were listening in on a prayer service that broke out of the boundaries of the upper room in which it was held. Tongues weren't given to preach, but to praise. And that's what the people in Jerusalem heard, each in his own language. The fact that this time of speaking in tongues gave way to Peter's preaching, which was not in tongues, validates the view that Paul is presenting here. He's saying this is for the edification. Preaching, prophecy is for edification. Tongues is good in its place, but it will never replace preaching, prophecy, explanation, speaking in terms that people can understand. Let's talk about prophecy. While the gift of tongues builds up your own soul and your own prayer life, the gift of prophecy edifies the church. And this description in verse 3 really broadens our understanding of the gift of prophecy, making sure we understand it to be more than just telling the future. Biblical prophecy means speaking edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. Prophecy is speaking the word of God. Uh, it's not private interpretation. It's not that impression you get that you feel you need to share with someone. It is speaking forth the very word of the Lord. Um, and it in such a way that builds us up, that's edification. It lights that fire under us to do what needs to be done. That's exhortation or encouragement. And it answers the doubts and calms the fears that might threaten to prevent our obedience to that word. That's comfort. Okay? This probably sounds a little bit like preaching, and there is certainly some overlap. Um, I don't want you to limit your understanding of this gift to preaching, as preaching is something you think of a pastor doing from a pulpit once a week, whereas speaking God's word to edify, exhort, exhort and comfort should certainly not be limited to, you know, that one guy that isn't you and uh, only comes around that one time a week. Uh, this is a gift that you should desire and that God can give. And again, I would say, if you desire these gifts, ask. The point in all of this is that Paul is encouraging the church, don't seek spiritual experiences that end in your own gratification. Pursue love. Don't seek spiritual gifts or experiences so that you can get the warm fuzzies, but rather... Seek spiritual gifts so that you can serve well. So your church that you're a part of can be a healthy church because you are tending to it. I'm not belittling tongues as a legitimate gift. I don't think Paul is either. But I am saying with Paul that he who prophesies, that is, he who speaks words to build another person up, to encourage them in their pursuit of God, to comfort them in their weakness, that person is doing a greater work than the one who speaks in tongues. Paul says that person is, is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Not in the sense that this is the person that loves Jesus more. They're way more holy. They're just better. But as a function in the church, more attention should be given to a ministry that makes sense that people can receive with knowledge than another kind of ministry that would need to somehow surpass knowledge or require another miracle to get you in on the, on the benefits. He says clearly, I'd rather speak five words that people can actually understand than a thousand in a tongue. 
I don't think he could do five words because he'd have like, by grace we have been. Sorry. They gave me five words. That's all I got. Uh, I think Paul should have should have picked six. But still, five words is better than a thousand in a tongue. And he, and he makes this little caveat. He says, unless he interprets. I mean, if, if the speaker's going to explain in the language that everyone can understand what's going on, well, that, that could be helpful. We'll get to that when we get, um, get a little further. But uh, let's read from verse uh, 6 through to 12. This passage is where Paul shows how it is important that we make sense when we communicate to groups of people. But now, brethren, I come to you speaking with, if I come, sorry, to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? Even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? For if the trumpet makes an unclear sound, who will prepare for battle? So likewise, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. This is a really long way of saying it's better to make sense. If you've got two options, you can say something no one's going to understand, or you could say stuff and everyone would understand. Choose that one! Do the second thing. If you're going to communicate, you ought to communicate in a way that other people can understand. If Paul came to Corinth and only spoke in tongues, in languages that none of them understood, they would not benefit from the experience no matter how much they dressed it up as a spiritual breakthrough. You can't pretend that indistinguishable sounds are meaningful to the one who hears it. And he compares this to music. Um, so like a, a bugler in an army, you know, in a warfare situation, you know, playing something to charge, playing something to retreat, giving the signals to the soldiers of what to do. He says, if they're just doing jazz out there, they're just improvising. Like, that's, it's a weird battle. Um, and he, he says there's sense to music. There's, there's melody, there's harmony, there's rhythm. And there have been composers that have tried to do away with all three of these things. Um, and, in, uh, in what's kind of like the, the modern art world of, of music, you have this composer, uh, John Cage, who in the 40s and 50s, he devised a system of composing music that was completely random, completely random. Uh, each note or instrument, if he was doing orchestral work, would be put together with basically a roll of a dice, but it was a little bit more complicated than that. Um, the whole thing was put together as a song without any intelligent design, which tells you something about John Cage. And, and, and it sounds like it. Like you listen, you're like, Yup, I know how you did this. I know this is, and, and there's a song, it's like 44 minutes long on the piano. Just It's rough. You can look it up. Uh, music of Changes. Uh, if you want to endure a sample, just don't do it in church. And uh, now, in a wonderful bit of irony, John Cage, this composer, also had a hobby of foraging for mushrooms. And he confessed that if he applied the same random system to picking which mushrooms he w should eat, he would be very, very dead. And it's because life is supposed to make sense. Music is supposed to make sense. Language is supposed to make sense. Order is a means of beauty. Now, sometimes our language is insufficient for the meaning our souls wish to express. Sometimes there are spiritual depths that cannot be sounded. 
with our own vocabularies. And I believe this is a place for the gift of tongues to be employed. The fact that such a gift exists shouldn't be a surprise to anyone who, anyone with a little bit of theological curiosity and knowledge, since it becomes evident even early on in one's walk with the Lord that our language is insufficient to talk about God comprehensively. Our language is insufficient to praise him sufficiently. We need music because just reading the words doesn't cut it. You know, there's methods of having our hearts cry out to the Lord that is beyond sensible language. Um, deep cries out to deep. But those conversations between your spirit and the God of the universe, those are things that he understands. He understands those conversations. Uh, he understands everything you don't. Um, and in speaking in tongues to him, he gets it. Other people aren't gonna. I'd love to see the battle where John Cage was the guy playing the trumpet, trying to sound retreat. If the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? We're supposed to make sense. If you don't speak with words easy to understand, then you will be speaking into the air. And verse 12 really gets Paul's point across clearly. Even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual things, spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Once more, we see that in all the chaos of Corinth, Paul still doesn't say, please be less spiritual. In their wild misuse of spiritual gifts, Paul doesn't say, be less zealous. He's not shutting them down. He is directing a misdirected desire. He's saying, since you care about this kind of thing, care about it in the way that God does. If you're going to be eager and excited about spiritual gifts and you're excited that you're growing in the Lord and you're excited that it feels like the Lord's just speaking to you all the time and you're excited about the, the Holy Spirit moving in your life, that's great, but be excited about that because the Lord is blessing his church through these things. If you're going to be eager and excited about spiritual gifts, be excited about how they can actually be used to build up other Christians in the church. The point of gifts is not having them, it's using them. In verse 13, he says, Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. Back in chapter 12, we saw that the gift of interpretation was a separate gift from tongues. We'll see the same principle when we get down to verses uh, 27 and 28, which is next time, not, not this morning. But it's possible for one person to have both gifts, to pray in a tongue and then offer the interpretation. Paul is telling the Corinthians to see their gifts as things for others rather than private possessions. He says, if you're going to use this with other people, then you need to pray that it will actually be useful for other people. As such, the one with the gift of tongues who may have this really great prayer life and a really deep relationship with God, they need to get their mind off of themselves and see that the things God gives are not for us to keep, but for us to give away. For the person with the gift of tongues, if that gift is going to be given away, meaning if it's going to be done in a public setting, it needs to be interpreted. This is what Paul explains in the next verse. He says, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the spirit and I will also pray with understanding. I will sing with the spirit and I will also sing with understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the spirit or in a tongue, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks since he does not understand what you say? For you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. Verse 14 explains the nature of this gift. It is something spiritual that bypasses or even supersedes understanding. That's what the gift of tongues does. 
which makes it inappropriate for settings where understanding is the goal. For example, a service where proclaiming the word is central. And it should be noted that those are the kinds of church meetings we see in the book of Acts or in the pastoral epistles of Paul. Paul says if he prays in a tongue, it is his spirit praying without intellectual understanding. And Paul still says there's a place for that kind of worship. But if I'm with you people, if I'm with the church, then if, I'm, if, I, if I pray in a tongue, I'm going to be sure that I'm going to pray in a way that makes sense that you can participate in. I'm just going to have my, my own personal prayer life here for all of you to see. Paul gives his conclusion, which is, oh, yeah, I'm going to do both, each in its proper place and setting. And you might say, yeah, how? How do you do both of that? Well, come back. Verse 26 through verse 32. Just didn't get, didn't get to it this week. Um, but here, he, he's just saying this. He says, knowing that praying in tongues does not edify anyone but the person speaking, I will pray and sing in both, each in its proper place. Paul goes on to show that the proper place for speaking in tongues is not in the general assembly. He says two, three people, that's probably about the right size for that kind of thing. And his first reason here, though, is, is simple. He says, if you pray in tongues, no one else can say amen. He did a big, long prayer in a foreign language. And everyone goes, amen, I think, I guess, I hope. I don't know what he said. Do you know what he said? I don't know. Now, verse 18 and 19, it's, it's interesting. Paul says, I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church, in the, the corporate gathering of the saints, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. Paul spoke in tongues. He prayed in tongues. He sang in tongues. We never read of that happening in the book of Acts or in any of his other letters. Well, why? Because he did it privately. Luke may have never even heard him pray in tongues. Never shows up in the book of Acts in Paul's missionary journey because it's not a public evangelistic ministry. But he says, I do it more than any of you. He's confident that he prays in tongues more than even the most holy roller Corinthian Pentecostals. But in church, he doesn't. Or, or if he does, extremely minimal. Five words to the thousand that he speaks with understanding. Now, now, this puts Paul in a place that could get him in trouble with both cessationists and Pentecostals. Imagine Paul saying that he speaks in tongues more than the Corinthians. That, that makes Imagining that makes a lot of well-meaning conservative Christians uncomfortable. But having Paul say, don't do that in church, that might rub some of the more charismatic friends of ours the wrong way. But this is where we find Paul encouraging the right use of tongues in the right setting, in the right place. The last verse of this chapter uh, describes all things being done decently and in order. And he describes what that is in the rest of chapter 14. We'll get even more on this topic next time when we do the second half of the chapter. But for now, halfway through, you can see how this is important to Paul. We know the things that were important to Paul. What was important to Paul? That the gospel be preached, that God is glorified in his church. He's passionate about the salvation of sinners. And when the spiritual gifts all get turned around into this kind of ingrown toenail, you know, and the whole church is just turning in on stuff like, look how spiritual we are. Wow. I don't know what's going on, but it feels really spiritual. The things that make Paul's heart beat are being neglected. He says, what about the understanding? Are you telling anyone about the great things God has done? Are you talking about the resurrection? No, you don't even believe one anymore. We'll get to that in chapter 15. You've left some really important stuff on the wayside because you've gotten so 
stuck on this issue of how spiritual you feel and how spiritual you sound, how spiritual you look. And I don't know what's going on with you guys. I think I need to write the book of 1 Corinthians to sort you guys out, right? Paul cares about the gospel. He cares about the salvation of sinners. Paul also wants God to be praised in spiritual worship, and he wants the spirits of the saints to be lifted up in whatever way the spirit will allow, but each in its place. Christ came in order to make God understood. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son has declared him. He's manifested him. He's made him known. The incarnation of Christ shows that God desires to be understood in ways that we can understand. Our ministry, if it is to imitate Christ, if it is going to be incarnational, should be intelligible. It would be wrong to represent the gospel in a confusing way or an offensive way and then blame the Holy Spirit on your lack of sensitivity. The priority on communicating clearly and effectively reflects God's incarnation methods, how he has come to us in the flesh as a man, making the invisible understandable. So let's praise him then. Let's praise him for coming to us in our weakness and then let us commit to represent him as his ambassadors with consideration for the weaknesses of those around us, not elevating our spiritual preferences above their need for Christ, nor seeking our own, but considering others as better than ourselves. This is where Paul is leading the church this is where we want to follow. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you. We love you. We know that you are generous to us. We know that you have your church's best interest in mind. And you know, you know our hearts, Lord. We don't want to mishandle any of these things. We don't want to um, abuse any of the gifts of your spirit. And we know that neglect is a kind of abuse, so we don't want to neglect any of the gifts of your spirit. Jesus, we pray that you would give us all the things needful for life and godliness and that we would be content with whatever gifts, callings, ministries, manifestations of the Spirit that you give us. We worship you. We love you. We pray your blessing on our church. Amen. 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 Go ahead and stand up. After the doxology, there will be people up here uh, praying. If, if you'd like prayer for anything specific, come up and receive prayer. And if that's not you, get out of the way so you're not distracting the people praying. <laughs> Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Saints of God.